gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe, is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller. And uh, this kind of continues some of what Rachel and I've been talking about like the last month or so. And we have Douglas Birch with us to talk about his book, Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. And I have to say, it's an excellent book, um, you know, in, in the Facebook group and uh, in the podcast. These are definitely things that we have um been talking about and trying to figure out how to navigate. And this was a really great, great read, and I learned a lot from it. So, Douglas, can you share a little bit about yourself and then also why you wrote the book? Well, hey, thanks for letting me be on the Theology Gals uh, show. I get to join the gals, and so that's a, a great treat. Uh, for me, you know, I, I guess, how do you define yourself uh, right now? I'm the father with four kids. One is left in the house. Uh, one's at tour at college and one's out there trying to figure out how to live life after college. And of course, uh, uh, my marriage to my lovely wife, Jennifer. Uh, I pastor a church, Evergreen Church. I've been doing that for like 23 years, I think. And then I do other stuff that I kind of call evangelism, but it's really just things that go outside the church, uh, writing books, uh, guest speaking, tweeting. I think a lot of us are in these roles where we have one role, but we have other roles as well that we can't necessarily define that well. So that's kind of the basic idea of who I am. And as far as writing the book, Posting Peace, uh, I think anyone listening to this, we are all in this place where we recognize that social media tends to be becoming more divisive or we're worried or concerned about the polarization, but we don't necessarily know what to do about it. So that was kind of my issue to research that, to find some answers for myself so that I could engage our culture, but not be destroyed <laughs> by our culture. And uh, from that uh, came a book. Uh, so that's kind of the, the beginnings of it. And like any journey, as you research and study, there's other, th other things that rise up that make it interesting as well. I just wanted to reiterate what Colleen said. I really enjoyed the book. I uh, learned a lot from it. Uh, found myself, you know, nodding and highlighting, yes, yeah, that's, <laughs> yes, that, seen that. But I agree. So, uh, it, very good read, very challenging. Um, made me think about the ways that um, I can uh, work on, on my own social media usage. And we'll talk about that more as we get uh, a little further in the podcast. But, you talked about you did the research, and I appreciate the research that you did and covered at the beginning of the book, especially. What would you say social media is doing to us as people? Mm. Uh, well, one of the things when I went into this, a lot of this comes from my doctoral work, and I try to make it practical, but I also am concerned with making sure that there's a foundation to the assertions 
that I make. But I, as a Christian, I used to kind of have this naive idea that, well, regardless of the medium, we just share the message of Christ. And I understand that, whether it's television, uh, the printing press, uh, radio, or uh, a, a book in, in the sense, or the internet, that we have a message and we share it in that medium. But what I've learned as I've studied more technological theorists and just looked at things, that the technology itself is radically changing our messages. And that's something I don't think we take uh, seriously enough, that the internet is changing the way we communicate and how we communicate. And if we're not aware of that, the technology itself will shift us into territories to behaving like people we don't normally behave like in everyday, you know, interactions. Uh, one, of the, I, I talk extensively about this in the book, but there's a dehumanizing reality to social media that we don't intend to do that. I'm, it's not all bad, by the way. I talk about all the good things that social media does, but there's a there's a reality where we don't see the person, we don't hear their voice, their intonations. Uh, they become more like ideologies or opinions that are just kind of floating out there, and then that dehumanizing reality of social media. Uh, tends to make us move in a direction that also dehumanizes. So instead of actually trying to connect with a real person and bring them Christ and break down every dividing wall of hostility, we begin to just argue with people as if people are ideologies instead of people made in the image of God. I was thinking of uh, a book group, I think it was, um, that was talking about peacemaking and you know, it talked about, you know, making, writing a letter is really your last resort because it's good for people to see, see your facial expressions, to hear the tone of your voice, things like that. People don't even learn empathy. Or we find that children learn empathy by looking at facial expressions. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the concerns in general with just people looking at technology instead of looking each other in the face. But we all understand this at some level. You might have a memory of the first time you said something rude or inappropriate to another kid. And you saw their face. You saw something happen to their face that changed. Uh, basically, uh, what you said is that if I say that, I'm going to hurt someone. And whether we even internalized that and really knew what was going on, for those of us who had empathy to rise up, it rose up because we saw those facial expressions. Well, we don't do that anymore. A lot of our communication is just text-based. So we can't even see that reality that if my words are hurting someone are creating anxiety or fear, depression, or if they're fine, if they're just like, hey, fine, keep talking. Those things are huge. And we're raising a culture where some basic human interactions of how to develop empathy are being tested when we're using a different technology to communicate. Oh, there's a, a quote from your your book, and I, I think probably Rachel can relate to it even more than I can, although I can too, just with the podcast. But you say, I could almost always spot a critical email by the formality of the greeting whenever individuals started their communication with Dear Mr. Birch or Dear Pastor Birch. What followed was almost never cordial, polite greetings were the prerequisite for impolite comments. So why do you think we've become so polarized and this sort of thing happens? I mean, even just for, we, we get messages like that too. Well, one, I'm sorry you do. And I was writing that particularly even when I did a radio show, a daily radio show that some of the meanest, angriest uh, emails I would receive are from Christians who thought they were right. And just from a theological basis, Christians need to understand the difference between being right and being reconciling. Because if I truly, my goal is to bring people into the light. For instance, if during this show, we do something wrong, we say something that's theologically incorrect. I mean, I, I, I know that's probably not possible, but let's just say <laughs> theoretically or hypothetically, we did that. Well, if someone heard that and they loved us, they would communicate to us in a way that demonstrated that love. Uh, reconciliation says, I care for this person and I see that they're in the dark or they don't have the fullness of Christ's light or they've bought into a lie versus the truth. And so I'm communicating because I want them to draw closer to God. And I also want to break down any dividing wall of hostility between each other. And so the Bible is really clear on that. How do we do that? Well, we we do that in love. We express truth, even difficult truth, hard truth, truth that might cause conflict and that no one wants to feel wrong or be wrong. But we do it with a genuine desire that I care about this person. 
I love them. I want to treat them the way that I'd want someone to treat me. I want to speak about them the way I'd want someone to speak about me if I was an error or I didn't quite see things right. Now, the problem with social media is it exaggerates some of these negative things where we try to be right instead of reconciling. And one of the things I argue for, and I think this is one of the biggest points of the book and of the research, is that one of the reasons we don't reconcile online is because we don't have to that we have so much access to relationships that relationships become cheapened. Uh, Before the internet, uh, we had less options to connect with people. We had less people to connect with. And so when a conflict arised, we worked to to work through that conflict because if we didn't, we didn't have other people to hang out with, (laughs) other people to interact with. Online, if I have a conflict with someone, well, I can just mute you and block you and disregard you and go to someone else, because we have all this access to thousands and millions of people. The access is great, but the access to more people and more communities and more relationships has made it so we're not as willing to go through difficult conflicts and trials with individuals because they're replaceable. And I think we don't address this enough that, you know, if we didn't have the internet, let's say if we didn't have a car, we went back to our ancestors, uh, they had to get along with their neighbors because their neighbors were pretty much the only person they're going to talk to or anyone within walking distance. They had to figure out a way to get along in church because there was only three churches in the town. And if they didn't get along, they weren't going to be able to get along with anyone. Now, of course, there was manipulations in a system like that. They were controlling pastors and controlling neighbors. But we at least learned how to go through conflicts. That's not happening online. Instead, we're segmenting with people who agree with us. The moment they disagree with us, we go to another group of people, and you're seeing the segmenting and this fracturing and this divisiveness. So we need to be aware of that so that when we face a conflict, our goal isn't just to be right, but it's to truly be reconciling, to truly try to bring people closer to God or the kingdom closer to them, and to break down every dividing wall of hostility between each other. Yeah, it's as Colleen said, that that kind of common, I I've said this publicly elsewhere that anytime someone starts out with dear Mrs. Miller, <laughs> um, I mean, and I, I'm all for respect. We should respect each other. We should treat each other with respect, but there is a way to use names like that where you're not really respecting and you're not no. wanting to. Right. So that, yeah. it was very familiar to read your comment there and be like, yes, yes, I've seen that. Well, for um, women, is it even, there's even also a tie there too, of if mm-hmm. there's any kind of downplaying of women, the Mrs. Miller and the, why are you doing this? Are you doing yeah. this to say that you think I'm not being appropriate as a woman? There's probably a level for you that's even more extreme. Very likely. Um, certainly there are uh, different levels of meaning uh, with the way we talk to. Um, and Coley and I like to say that we, we learn things about ourselves all the time. Uh, I didn't know that we were antinomians. I didn't know that we were... <laughs> feminists i didn't know that that we denied this that or the other like wow you learned all sorts of things about yourself on the net um you mentioned a little bit earlier about the medium of social media and in the book you you use the quote the medium is the message um and you you write uh social media fundamentally changes what we say when we say it where we say it why we say it how we say it what does it mean to say the medium is the message and how does that apply in, in our discussions today? Mm. Well, that term comes from Marshall McLuhan, a technological theorist who is quite popular, let's say in the late uh, 1970s. And uh, it's kind of a provocative term. Like, well, what does that even mean? The medium is the message. But what he talked about is that we need to understand that mediums don't just communicate our messages, they change our messages. And so whatever medium you use, it'll change what we talk about and how we talk about things. And it's true with, uh, let's say you do the gospel on TV, uh, on television. What's the problem with television? There's lots of problems. But one, there's no real interaction between the audience and the person who's preaching or teaching. That medium is then going to change how the gospel is communicated. Uh, Books change the way the gospel is communicated. One of the things is it takes a certain amount of organization. A certain personality types are more likely to write books than others. And so, if we get our theology from books, we might only be getting theology from people who have a certain personality type, a certain discipline to write a whole book. We might also be influenced by who controls the publishing industry, what books are popular in a capitalistic society. Are we getting the best theology? Are we getting books that sell? 
that medium is changing our messaging. Well, online, the internet comes in and it, and it, and it does something that changes what we message and how we message things. And um, one of the biggest things that you see is the internet is full of snippets. It's full of little sayings, quick. We don't really read deeply anymore. Uh, if we can tweet it, if we can post it, uh, that's going to influence what we talk about. I'm sure you guys deal with this in the in the sense of theology. Uh, theology, you can't sometimes just a, a simple statement that clearly tells what's going on. And people won't even wait long enough. You mentioned earlier with people telling you who you are, that you're a feminist or you're this. That's also what social media does is we are immediately categorizing people into groups and sorting people immediately, right? You give one opinion about an important issue and someone calls you far right or far left, right? You give one statement uh, and just from that statement, they segment you before they even hear the argument. That social media is ripe for those kinds of misunderstandings when it's much more charged about giving my opinions and what I believe than truly listening to people and understanding what they're trying to say. We've definitely seen that with what you're describing, the the categorizing and the example. I always think of a podcast right before Rachel joined me. Just from that one episode, I was called an antinomian and a legalist, two different people. What I've witnessed is if you don't line up perfectly with that that tribe, they will automatically categorize you as the other side. Mm. And mm. that ha- happens to us all the time um, in some of the accusations. But one of the things that I really struggle with is if you love someone your goal, again, is not to try to win an argument. It's to try to really know them. And so that spirit of immediately assuming you know who someone is, and often it changes how they treat you, right? It, be, it turns into this aggressive argument. As you're hearing the person talk to you, you're like, do you even care about me? I mean, maybe I am lost. Maybe I do have a terrible theology here, but the Bible's pretty clear, right? Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them, and don't expect to be repaid. So, even if I'm your enemy or your friend, uh, I know if you're being Christ-like to me. And the church online has really adopted a lot of practices for arguing that just aren't biblical. They're probably more the practices of extreme partisanship, where the goal is just for our side to win and your side to lose. Uh, and the concept, well, as long as I'm right, I can just barrel in there and say whatever I want to say. But often, if you're just trying to be right, you don't try to really hear the person. So, you don't hear the nuances. You don't hear what they're actually saying. And then also, if we're honest, I think we use social media so much for our individual needs that we're really less concerned about what the other person thinks. We're just upset if we think what they think contradicts what we think. So, we're more just defending our ideas our worth, our value, and tearing down anyone else who, you know, contradicts or contrasts our existence. And as Christians, we have to be at peace with who we are. I can't get my self-worth and my meaning from people, whether they agree with me or don't agree with me. If I'm trying to get self-worth and identity from other people, then I'm going to be fighting with them and constantly contending for my worth so that I won't feel bad when I come to a disagreement. Yeah, that's a good description of of what we're seeing. You you write networked individualism creates an environment where people use each other primarily for self fulfillment, which is actually what you're starting to talk about there. So, what is networked individualism, and how does it affect our online communication? Can I just tell you how fun it is to be interviewed by people who've actually read my work? That <laughs> I know that's not always the case, but it's so nice to have a dialogue about the actual book. Uh, networked individualism is a term that uh, two uh, scholars, I think it's Rainey and Wellman, uh, I think they work for Pew Research, but they used it to describe uh, the strength of the internet. And, and if they ever read my book, I wonder if they'll be offended by this, but they kind of see this as a positive, that the strength of the internet is I can take whatever my individualistic needs are, and I can get them met through different networks. And that's really how we use the internet and social media. So I got Google as my friend, and whatever my need is, I need to be associated with people who love the Mariners so I can Google Mariner fan club and I can just hang out with Mariner fans, right? Uh, whatever the need is. Now, there's great strengths to this, right? Where 
this is one of the things I love about uh, social media. It's allowed people who have experienced abuse to unite with other people who have experienced abuse. And so we can meet that individual need. So it's not wrong to meet individual needs. But the problem is we are almost solely aligning based on our individualistic needs. It's networked individualism. So my network of people is completely dependent upon them meeting my needs. So I go to this group so that they can meet uh, my political needs. I go to this group so they can meet my religious needs. And we literally interact with people as much as they meet our individual needs. And if they don't, we just leave that group, leave that person, and we find someone else who does. Now, we all understand the problem with that. True relationships, and the, the term that they'll use as well is weak ties versus strong ties. A weak tie relationship is where I'm just united with you over one thing. A weak tie could be both our kids play soccer together. So we're soccer parents. We talk as we watch them play soccer. The only reason we have that relationship is soccer. The moment soccer is over, we probably won't talk to each other. That's a weak tie relationship. We have those. But if life is just full of weak tie relationships, we're in trouble. Strong tie relationships, it goes beyond one thing. And in fact, if you think about the deepest relationships you have, you can agree about a lot of things, but it doesn't even matter if you have different opinions about other things because you love each other, you feel called to relationship, you're together. And strong tie relationships can be family. It's not always family, but it can. Deep friendships, church communities, or at least healthy church communities. Like an unhealthy church is one where we only love you if you agree with everything we agree with. A healthy church is a church where we have agreement about some strong, central things, but we can have disagreement about other things. This is a problem with social media. It is ripe, and it's a great strength for networked individualism. Any need I have, I can start Googling and researching and finding people to meet those needs. But now we're treating people in a transactional basis. I only interact with you as much as you meet my needs. We can all see the problem with that. Uh, love goes through conflicts. Love is called to be with someone even when you disagree with them. And as Christians, we're supposed to be in relationships, not for our needs to be met, but because we're supposed to be a light and life in dark places. We're supposed to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And when you reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ, they don't always meet your needs. They're sometimes messy. <laughs> and so that, again, is the struggle when it comes to social media communication. You know, one of the things, and you know, you're an author as as well, obviously, and and the things that you've done, um, the things that we have to do as authors and and podcasters, and the, the things that we're expected to do in platform building, or in gaining followers and gaining reach, so that you know, publishers will will buy our books and people will, you know, you know what I mean? Like there's that that yeah. sense of needing to build a following, right? And it, it does end up with with treating people and viewing people uh, as uh, a means to an end, right? And I need more followers. Does it matter that it, it's engagement? No, it just means I need the number, right? That that approach to people and to social media. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing to want to have more reach or to, to reach out and have other people, but that that constant sense of I have to build something here in order to be worthwhile. And you know, you, you mentioned. Uh, later on in your book about we should build relationships and not a following. And and that's where you know, I appreciate what you're saying about network individualism and how we're viewing people that we should be seeing people as individuals and relationships and be less focused on, well, you know, I hit, you know, 25,000 views this week or whatever the, the number is that you need. Um, I mean, have you felt that stress yourself with your writing? Yeah, and I think all of us feel that in some way. And there's also this fear that people are only with me as much as I feed whatever they need to be with me. And so you can also feel like people don't really know you. We find this with teenagers where they have all kinds of weak tie relationships. And as much as they kind of interact and keep posting and doing stuff that they're, they're on the grid, but there's this fear that they'll just disappear that no one really knows them. And if they don't keep interacting, that audience or that group of online friends or, or whatever we want to call them, followers or community, will disappear. So it can be very lonely, right? Where you can have lots of people, 
but you can feel lost. And I think we've all found that as well, where we're, we're presenting ourselves and wanting someone to listen and maybe interact with us. But we kind of feel like if I just disappeared online, would anyone really care? Would eventually, you know, a few months later, they'd be like, hey, where's Doug? Now, I know, you know, people would care. But that's another struggle where we are measuring things based on how many people. In fact, social media really becomes like an advertising thing in that it's a general proclamation to no one in particular, right? Mm-hmm. Advertising, you just say something about a product, and then those who like it gravitate towards that. Well, Twitter's like that. I say my view on politics, and those who agree gravitate towards that. But the problem with general communication is sometimes we don't take personal responsibility about that communication. So one, am I connecting one-on-one with someone? Are we more just arguing about the general principle? And another one for accountability, and we've seen this as well, general proclamations have specific consequences. And what will happen is if someone says something offensive in a general way and people challenge that, they'll just say, well, I'm just communicating my opinion. They don't necessarily feel as responsible for the outcomes of their communication. So we also see this with people with large followings. They can share some really provocative, and this is usually more in the political sphere or the extreme religious kind of fight people kind of thing. They'll say these extreme things, and the people who like it, they'll you know rally around them and say yes and amen, and I agree. But the people don't take responsibility for those words and how they are specifically hurting others because they're, I'm just sharing my opinion. You either love it or leave it. Uh, you don't do that if you're in the room with one other person. If you're in the room with one other person, you speak based on a relationship, you're accountable for what you say. So we've also lost this accountability as we're growing audiences, this general accountability to the decency of humanity. And so, yes, when we grow audiences, we can lose sight of the audiences that we might be hurting. And also, we just become general and generic. I've also found this, and we could talk about so many things, but we all know this. And Rachel, I I got to know you a little bit more through social media. And one of the things I appreciate about you is how you communicate but you know this, that uh, negativity trends more than positivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you say something terrible, you can get a greater audience. And all of us are confronting that. You say something provocative and extreme and controversial, people will retweet it all over the universe. If you say something <laughs> encouraging and biblical and you know, shining the light of Christ, maybe three people will, will like it. So that is a great temptation to build audience on the wrong spirit. Um, you know, talking about, you know, what you would, how you treat online communication differently than you would treat someone uh, say face to face. And uh, one point in the book, you mentioned about uh, this, if our current detached online world could somehow bleed out into our present in-person relationships, our baristas, hairdressers, et cetera, um, they would become faceless, replaceable blurs. And you also uh, mentioned the studies about humans being less sympathetic with prolonged social media use. And this is not something you particularly deal with with the book, but I wanted to ask you reading that, do you feel like this is beginning to happen um, in in the world around us as we we see people and how they're treating each other, you know, now that we're kind of moving from having been so online and disconnected to inter- interacting with people face-to-face again. Well, I think, and I'd, I'd love your, your opinion as well on this. I think this is what's happening with our segmenting and just finding people who agree with us. And I'm seeing it with, let's say, just how we're handling some of the most extreme expressions, the camps of, um, you know, I'm, I'm pro-vaccine and pro-social distancing, but regardless, uh, I'm also pro-loving people. And But what you're finding for people who are on any side of something or th- in public, I see them treating people worse. And I think they can do that because they can just go home and then go online and unite with the people who agree with them. And if they couldn't do that, if they could only have the negative, you know, they have a fight with someone at the grocery store or an argument in person. And then they went home and there was no computer and they were just left with themselves. I don't think they would engage in that behavior as much. So that's one area where social media and our access to networks of people, you can find people who agree with you and the ability to find people who agree with us, even when we're doing terrible stuff is a problem and it's impacting empathy. And we've always known this in principle, for instance, an unhealthy marriage is when communication breaks down. But we, we know this concept of 
there's a couple fighting. And then so one of the, you know, in the marriage, the spouse will go to their friend and just complain to the friend about their husband or about their wife all the time, just complain and complain and complain. There's an aspect of that that isn't healthy if it doesn't lead to the person coming back in relationship with the spouse. They start just having their emotional needs, um, whatever. They just start doing them in another direction that doesn't help with reconciliation. Yes, it's good to share with people problems if it's redemptive in that it's a way we can pray for each other and find a better way to move back into those relationships. It's not healthy when we're just talking about our family in negative ways to other people. And you see this on social media as well. And by the way, I think there's someone might be listening now who you feel condemned. And this isn't to condemn you. We're all trying our best. I'm trying to give you some things that might help you be more human, more Christ-like, more who you truly are online as you are in person. But one of the things I'll see people do with social media is they'll talk about their spouse, their children, their friends in a way that if their friends or their spouse or their children read that tweet or read that post, they'd be tremendously hurt. I think that's a problem. I want to talk about anyone like they're in the room. So if I'm talking about my wife in person with someone and she's not in the room or online and she's not in the room, I'm talking in a way that if she was next to me, I believe she'd be okay with that. She'd be like, yes, Doug, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you're an advocate for me. That might seem like a little thing, but that's a problem if we start teaching our kids that mom and dad think about you one way online, but in person, they think about you a different way or in our marriage, you know, in person, I treat you this way but with other people, I treat you differently. You can see the problem with that. It creates a dualism. It creates a lack of trust. And it doesn't help with actually trying to grow in a relationship because now I'm getting my needs met, not by talking to the family. Like I'm upset on vacation because the family doesn't like where I took them. In olden days, I had to talk to the family. Well, now I can just go online and complain. I'm on vacation. The kids don't like what I'm doing and I'm upset. And then people can give me comfort and encourage me. And now I'm getting all my emotional and relational needs met outside the room when I really need to interact with the people inside the room that are a part of the issue or the problem. One of the things that I've seen is that a lot of the poor behavior from Christians specifically is justified because we have to preach the truth, you know, and I, I taught my kids um, just because something is true doesn't mean you need to say it, Mm. you know, is it wise? Is it going to be fruitful? Is it, is it gracious? You know, but I, it's almost, almost like there's some people out there that think it's their job to go out and just beat everyone over the head with, Mm. with, Truth, um, you have a great quote. Uh, Truth matters. However, Christians are not called just to be right, but to be reconciling. This means we must always communicate truth in ways that value the relational significance of why truth matters. I love that. Ultimately, God calls every Christian to communicate truth for the purpose of reconciling the lost. The goal of Christian communication isn't to win the argument but to win people to Christ, to demonstrate the love of God and through conflict. And I was actually listening to another podcast and they said something that I wrote down because I thought it fit into this discussion. They were talking about um, the way people interact on, on Twitter and because they're trying to proclaim some truth. And, and they said, we shouldn't ridicule someone for being wrong. So even if, even if you think that that person is absolutely wrong, that's not really the way to go about it. But why are we so quick to argue and how is that affecting our call to spread the gospel? And I'll just say one more thing. I always quote it. So my listeners are probably tired of it, but I liked it. And it was, um, how do we look to the world when we treat one another like this? And that's mm-hmm. something I think about a lot. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things that I've thought about is Jesus is really the model in the sense of although Jesus is the Son of God, he when he, in the baptism he basically surrenders himself to the Father's leading through the Holy Spirit. So it's the Father's favor and the leading of the Holy Spirit that initiates the ministry of Jesus on earth. So he only does what the Father tells him to do through the leading of the Holy Spirit. And although we are not uh, obviously the Son of God, uh, as Paul followed the leading of the Holy Spirit, as other New Testament believers did. We do that as well, because Jesus could have gone to each and every person he met and said, repent, you wicked sinner. He could have done that to every person, right? He could have, and he would have been right, 
and just in the sense of that's true. But that's not what Jesus did. And that's the amazing story of the Gospels. You, you find people where you think if ever there was a person just to give a lecture to, it'd be this person. But instead, he frees them and says, you know, go and sin no more. I think about when he frees the, the man who's, you know, controlled by demons. If ever there was a time maybe for some lectures, it might be, you know, how did you get in this state? But again, led by the Holy Spirit, Jesus says specific things to specific people. And if the Son of God did that, then I think we should probably do that as well, or at least try. So, the relational element is, what does someone need now? I think about this. My dad uh, and his family, one of his brothers was an alcoholic and a long-term alcoholic. And uh, my dad would get pretty angry at him because the behaviors he was engaging in with his alcohol were really dangerous. They were detrimental, hurting his family and others around him. And he would be ready to go to his brother's house to give him that lecture. And I think we all know this, right? Where you just want to go and give the lecture. You've been talking it out in your head and the things you're going to say, and it all sounds right and true, right? But he would show up there and instead of giving the lecture, he'd just love him. He'd just be with him and try to encourage him and listen. Well, his brother gave his life to Christ and and took his alcoholism seriously and became clean and sober. And it's a great testimony. Uh, But one of the things his brother said to him is he said, you know, when you came to visit me, I knew that I was sinning. I knew that. I knew that I was sinning and I was in the wrong, but I didn't know that I was loved. And that hit me. Uh, At some level, we have to know that people before God even know. They know they're out of control. They they know they're not in a good place. They know that this is not a Christ-like response. But I don't know if they always understand the depths of God's love. And so my goal isn't just to be right. It's to be Christ in their midst. Now, sometimes it is where I got to say difficult stuff and I'm saying it because I love them and it's going to cause conflict and justice demands conflict sometimes. But that is very dependent upon the relationship. Uh, Also at a practical level, will you change your mind based on a stranger? No, you won't. Even if they're right, if a stranger comes to me and says, you need to parent differently, I mean, how well does that go, right? Uh, If I know someone loves me and they have a relationship with me, then I'm more willing to listen to an idea that might conflict with the way I'm living or contradict the way I'm living. So to me, on social media, at some level, I need some relational equity. We need to, at least they know, hey, I'm not against them, or I'm just sharing an opinion, but I'm not trying to tear them down. And that takes extra work. That takes a few more posts. It might take that your first interaction, instead of arguing theology, you just say, hey, thanks for sharing that. I don't agree. I don't you know, believe that, but I really wanted to hear what you had to say, and that helps me understand you. Anytime you want to talk, that's great. That's not not contending for truth. That's building a relationship. So the next time when you say, hey, have you ever thought about this? And you begin to come in and maybe contradict or or give a different approach. They know that you already respect them as a person. That work takes time. And I see that, you know, the one of the worst statements that people say, you know, truth doesn't, or facts don't care about your feelings, or truth doesn't care about your feelings. I think that's a terrible statement because uh, Christ very much does care about our feelings. Uh, he gives us truth and he gives us love. And that's our mandate as well, that I want to, as best as I know how, communicate truth in a way that's loving. And if they don't receive it as love, that should impact me because I care about them. And I want to find a way for them to know that I'm communicating this truth, even this hard truth, because I genuinely love them. And if I don't genuinely love them, I probably shouldn't be speaking because I am dangerous and I'm probably doing it for the wrong reasons. That's uh, it's very helpful. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I appreciate about your book is that you not only do you spend a good, a good section of the time talking about, you know, here's what's wrong, but also, you know, here's how to, change what we're doing or change the narrative and change our approach. And uh, it's a good balance of, mm-hmm. you know, addressing the problem and also um, proposing some solutions. Appreciate you saying that. And one of the things I wanted people to know is I'm not your intermediary. So the Lord will show you the best next steps. They might be different, 
But I think all of us can just kind of assess where we're at and then depend upon our calling, our relationships, what God's put on our heart. We can apply these in our own relational context based on our uniqueness. And I wanted people to know that I'm not anyone's God. I don't have all the answers here, but here's some resources that will help you make these decisions. Well, you're not going to give a a checklist and we love our checklists um, as people, but you're not giving us a checklist. But what are some of the things that you would recommend to how to address the negative and the polarization and you know is it just get off social media just ignore it hopes it gets better or what are some ways that you would say here are some steps that you can take well one of the things i take mental health seriously and for some people uh social media is too much for their mental health so i could say you know you got to stay involved and we need to be a part of this culture But for some, you only have so much energy and you only have so much time in life and there are priorities in your life. So, for instance, if the priority in your life is the relationships that are in person and those you're struggling with, then you need to give your best energy towards that. Uh, That's another sign even that we're kind of out of whack. If we're on Facebook really politically active and we're fighting for things and we're posting things and we're arguing with people and yet our marriage is broken and our kids don't like us and we're not connected and we're giving all our best energy to strangers online instead of the people who've been truly entrusted to our care, then you probably need to get offline and give your best energy towards how am I going to help with this marriage or how are we going to deal with the kids or these friendships or the church that I'm in? And that's the danger. Uh, The crusades of social media can have less relational cost. It's almost like missionaries who try to escape what's happening in their own homeland. So they go overseas to try to escape it. But you don't become a different person and the problems are still there. So we do need to deal with those relational uh, problems. So that to me is one of the, the, the practical ways that some people do need to be offline. But I would argue this, that Some of the most important issues, the most important conflicts and debates are occurring online. And we need Christians to be a part of that. Like like this podcast, for instance, it allows an answer for people. It gives hope uh, when people feel hopeless. If they search something or Google something, they might find something that you, you talk about on your show and, or it creates a safe community that nurtures people and allows them to go out into the world and do the difficult things of living as a Christian in the world. So I believe as Christians, we need to be present in the most important issues of our time, but we need to be present where our spirit is radically different than everyone else. And just like one just thing that I would ask people to do, look at the last, I don't know, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks of your social media posts and just categorize them. Just look at them. Like how, what, what are you actually talking about? And does that represent who you truly are as a person and who Christ is in you? I've said this before, and I'm not trying to do it to be dramatic, but if you died today and someone in in front of the congregation who came to mourn your death read your social media post over the last month, would you be embarrassed? Would you think it it, 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 it truly represents you? And I'm not talking about embarrassed you say something silly you did, but would it not really be a truly three-dimensional you? And I'm seeing this with some Christians that online, they're just one-dimensional. It's just all angry politics or, or it's just all theological arguments. But if you meet them in person, that's not the whole person. And that's another one that we need to look at. What I'm doing online, does it align with who I am? Does it represent me and Christ in me? And if it doesn't, I need to intentionally make room for a real person to be presented. Because if we start being real people with the love of Christ, the fruits of the Spirit, and we engage these difficult conversations, uh, we will look radically different than the rest of the people on the face of the earth. Uh, If we don't, we'll actually look worse because we'll be just as opinionated as other people, but we'll also have that religious tinge where it's like, and God's on our side as well. So this is the area that I'm asking people to look at, the spirit in which you communicate. Are you being humanizing or dehumanizing? Is your goal to reconcile or just to be right? Are you treating people like they're in the room with you? Are you trying to build a relationship or are you trying to build an audience? And here's another practical thing you can do online. 
if you're concerned about something, uh, for instance, a lot of Christians are concerned and should be concerned with, with the issues of race and how our culture handles race. Now, regardless of your opinions on this, instead of just posting online your opinions on race, get into relationships locally. Uh, one of the things I'll ask someone, I'll say, well, what do your uh, black pastor friends think about that? Or what do your black friends think about that? Uh, and then that's the question. And if, if you don't have any relationships or healthy relationships, then trend local. Take that national trending topic and get in relationship with people. If you have views about immigration, then find out what's happening in your community to help immigrants or Christian communities who care about immigrants. And you'll have a much more complex, um, healthy three-dimensional view of that trending topic. But they found even with scholars that our scientists have found this, that sometimes when people post something, it feels like they've done it. They get the same feeling in their brain as if they've actually done the thing. Like we feel like we've changed the world because we tweeted about our view on guns or abortion or whatever the issue is. We have to be careful that just tweeting it is not doing it. So trend local. If you're passionate about it, if you find yourself talking about it a lot online, See what's happening in your local community and start investing in relationships where you see your ideas and your ideology. How does it work actually in relationships as you walk through conflicts and you live in long-term abiding? Yeah, I've s- stepped away from Twitter recently because I just it was it was too much for me. I'll sign in every week or two to my personal account and just see if I've missed anything important. But um, I've seen some of my own friends be unkind to each other. They don't necessarily know they're both friends of mine, um, but someone tweets out a hot take and they get, you know, their group comes and high fives and then the people on the other side come and mock them and, you know, just mm. that sort of thing going on. Uh, and what my next question has something to do with, um, something Rachel and I have had to deal with. And there's sometimes, I mean, you talk about trolls in the book, but um, that you get these angry, unkind, you know, that just go after you over and over. It's not fruitful at all. And, And they say all kinds of colorful things about you, true or not. And how do we deal with people like that? Is it okay to just block and disengage. I'll, I'll tell you my own standard is um, if I don't think continuing in a conversation is going to be fruitful, I walk away. But sometimes, you know, I, I used to not block people, but we dealt with some really abusive behavior towards us. My husband's like, just block them. I'm like, you're right. I should just block them. Yeah. I, one, I'd just say Yes. You can block, you can mute, you do whatever you feel you need to do. It would be incredibly arrogant for me to say, oh, I know what you two should do. Like even the fact that I'm just a man versus not being a woman. I, I Every woman I've talked about, there's other layers of toxicity that you deal with on social media that I'm not the person to speak to. Uh, the reality is there are people who are trying to harm you and trying to hurt you. And I do have a chapter in the book talking about this, that uh, you know, trolling, the idea it used to be, and it even kind of started this way where trolling was just to cause conflict and to laugh about it. So early trolling would be someone would go into a discussion group that was all about Star Trek, and then they would uh, confuse Star Trek with Star Wars, and they would do it intentionally and just to get people upset. And their goal is just to get people upset and fighting with you and whether that's right or wrong, and why would someone get their joy out of causing confusion? It's almost like the high school prankster that just wants to make people upset. Well, the the reality is that term became more and more toxic, where people go into environments and their goal is just to cause chaos. Their goal is to hurt people. Their goal is to draw the attention to themselves, not to the topic, um, not for truth, uh, not for relationship, uh, either just to cause confusion or to harm and to hurt people. Now, for me, I don't call people trolls because I feel like the term itself is a dehumanizing term. Uh, People who troll are humans. They're made in the image of God, yet they're engaged in behavior 
that is like a troll. You know, they're engaged the 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 monster under the bridge. They they can do monstrous behavior, but they're not monsters. Because once I start saying someone is a troll or a monster, I dehumanize them and I say, well, I'll never be like that. Only monsters are like that. Only trolls are like that. So I try to still humanize the person. But I think you hit at it so well. We all have to come to these things. One for my own mental health. And it's your feed, by the way. We have to remember this. Facebook is my feed. If someone calls me a friend, I have the right to say, you know what? I don't treat my friends this way. I don't want my friends interacting this way. If you were in my home acting like this, I'd ask you to leave or change your tune. And so it's fine to do that on Facebook. And if they're like, well, I can do that other places, you make sure you can do it other places, which is why I'm going to contend for a better dialogue on my Facebook page. So I have no problem with that. The concept, well, everybody gets to say what they want and do what they want. We just need to facilitate you know, as much discussion as possible. That's not healthy. Think about even the town hall. When people actually met in person in a town hall setting, if I said something terrible, the guy next to me could punch me in the nose. So it would even control what I would say, right? So it's not, well, we're just having a healthy discussion. It's people in isolation and anonymity, uh, far away from you saying terrible things and not dealing with the relational consequences. So to me, this is kind of the way I'll do that. If somebody comes at me strong where I think, you know, obviously the people just say terrible, horrible things, you're, you're, you deal with them. But someone where you feel like they're trolling you, I will ask for clarification or I will humanize the situation. If they're just calling me names or something, I'll do something to humanize the, the conversation. Say, hey, you know, I'm just a person here. I'm just trying to communicate this. Uh, I'm not trying to offend people. And then I'll, I'll just humanize it. And you'll either see someone will go, oh, I'm in a wrong place. And they'll start humanizing the dialogue. I, I find this as a pastor, people who hate the church. They've been hurt by pastors. So their first response is, oh, pastors are in it for the money. They're terrible people. Well, instead of me getting defensive, I say, well, that's not my heart. I can understand why you might see that. Can you explain more what you mean by that? And you either have a healthy discussion or you have the person come back and say something terrible to you. If you know they're going to just keep saying terrible things to you, the most loving thing you can do is to block them or mute them or stop communicating. Because when someone is sinning against you, they're sinning. And if you love them, you don't want to lead them into sin. And so I give this argument that if someone's sinning against me, it's loving to not allow them to sin against me more, to not continue to allow them to harm themselves and to harm me. So that's my motivation. My motivation isn't, I'm going to make you feel bad like you're making me feel bad. It's your behavior is harming yourself. It's harming me. It's sinful. I'm going to hand you over to Satan. Paul talks about that. I'm, I'm not going to allow you to keep sinning against me and, and doing something that's harmful. So to me, that's a loving expression. I can bless someone. I can say something like the scripture says to love your enemies and bless them. So I will bless enemies online. I will say I'm praying and not just, you know, as some side statement to make them feel bad, but I'm praying for you or my wife and I will pray for you, but this is clearly not a healthy conversation. So we're going to need to part ways or something like that. And if they get upset and angry at me, it's a sign I should have blocked them in the first place because a person who's loving or kind or at least understanding they wouldn't be offended at me. They'd be offended at a behavior that allowed that to happen. So I, I definitely agree that there are times, and I give a whole chapter on ways to do that and how Jesus dealt with these things. There are times to be able to create boundaries and also to give your best energy to people. The Spirit of the Lord is on us so that we're supposed to give our energy to the people God has called us to give our energy. And this works both ways. Sometimes you can just hide out with people who are friendly and the Lord's like, no, I want you to spend time with these people over here. It'll cause conflict, but they need to hear the good news of Jesus. You're hiding out over here when you need to go into these places of conflict. There's other times where it's you're wasting all your time arguing with this guy who clearly doesn't want to change. You can hand them over to me and go and find the lost sheep, leave the 99, go find the one who's truly lost, that when you interact with them, it's going to be a breath of fresh air. It's going to be living water. They're going to be thankful that you found them online. So that 99 and one lost sheep scenario works for me online as well. Sometimes you even have to block the 99 in order to find the one lost sheep. You know, uh, I think that's a very helpful answer and way to think about it. Uh, the you know the balance of uh, what the proverb says about you know answer a fool according to his folly and don't answer a fool according to his folly you have both of those and you have to decide which one applies to this situation um, and not always easy yeah. um, 
and I want to encourage people to read your book and I don't want to, you know, you know, have you, we talk about everything in the book so that people don't have anything to go read. There's a lot there. There's, there's so much information that would be very useful. Um, especially if you're, you're concerned about the way things are going online. But the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is you, you talk a lot about being peacemakers and what that means for us as believers. What are some, some things that we can do a step or two that we can take even today to work towards being peacemakers or work towards reconciliation? Well, one, I, I try to write and live in a way that everything is just free in the sense of I'm just getting it out there. I would not, if we talked about everything in the book and people got enough here where they didn't need to buy the book, I'm fine with that. The message is far more important than the book. Do I need to survive financially? Does it help me when people purchase a book? Yes, of course. But God provides. God is my sustainer. He's the lifter of my head. My future is in his hands. I have a message to communicate, and that's far more important than any monetizing of that message. Uh, with this, I really just want to encourage those listening right now that I've noticed in the publishing industry that some of the most popular books are books that are about what's wrong with them. And we read a book like, what's wrong with the evangelicals or what's wrong with the church? And they're not bad books, but they're kind of safe to us. We pick them up and it just confirms what we believe. Yes, you're right. And they aren't doing this right. And this is what's wrong with misogyny or this is what's, whatever the issue is. We unite around our disagreement or our agreement with the person who's talking about them. For me as a pastor and as a person, I'm really big on the issue of before I look at the plank in other people, excuse me, the speck in other people's eyes, I look at the plank in my own. And this book allows any person to truly just assess their life. And that's what I want people to do is to assess your life in a climate of grace. God loves you. You're in the center of his grace. He's not here to condemn you. He's here to conform you to the image of Christ. Any revelation of anything you can do better is not condemnation. It's freedom. It's an answered prayer. It's good news. And so that idea that if, if right now someone's listening and they realize they're just not in a good place online, then go to God because God loves you. And he's begun that thing that this he's alpha and omega. He gave that spark in you that says, hey, there's a better way. Go to God. Throw your life into his hands. Say, search my heart. Know my ways. Nothing to be hidden. Nothing to be defended. Here I am. And welcome his direction. How can I communicate in a way that is more honoring and pleasing to you? And I'll tell you, when you communicate in a way that is honoring and pleasing to God, it's also beneficial to the person. It's a good place to be. You'll start feeling more like you. You'll start feeling more human. You'll You'll start feeling like instead of just reading through things, dreading them, you're reading and you're interacting because it's a part of your mission. It's a part of your calling. So at the end of each chapter, I have these things called posting peace challenges. And I noticed a lot of people won't do them. And I, I think one of the reasons is it, it can be challenging. You're committing to something. But that's really what I'd like some of you to do, like a spiritual discipline. Commit to one thing. Like I said earlier, maybe go back over all your posts and just for a month and see uh, am I represented clearly online? Are Jesus, are you represented? Do people see Jesus through my social media post? And then just write something, a commitment. I'm going to do this as I move forward. I'm going to make sure that at least one out of every five posts has some good news. I haven't posted a scripture in a long time. Maybe I'll do that. Just take that next step that's true to you and true to what God is saying in your heart. And then I would encourage you that uh, especially for justice people, justice is good, and God put that on your heart. But as Christians, we communicate justice still, no matter how angry we are, no matter how wicked the world is, we still communicate a justice that tries to reconcile the enemies of God. And if you don't have a way of being that knows how to love enemies, then you got to get into the word. In fact, you know, maybe just Google enemy and love and look at the references in the New Testament, and you'll find a different way than the world. We are supposed to speak against injustices. And sometimes the most loving thing you can say is stop, don't ever do that again. And if you do it again, we're going to leave. There is a way to create boundaries. There is a, a way to contend for justice. 
but you're still doing it because you know that God loves that person and they're in sin, they're in wickedness, they're harming themselves, they're harming the world, and the best thing you could do is to contend for justice. Love is such a simple Sunday school answer, but if we're not motivated by love, uh, we're not motivated by Christ. And when you're motivated by love, you will contend for truth, but you'll do it for the right reasons. I, I just had one last question and kind of touches on some things that you talked about earlier, but it seems to me, and at least from my perspective, that people are having a more and more difficult time with people that disagree with them. So on just such a wide variety, uh, Rachel and I talk about the mommy groups, so which is one example, and you know they unite over their views about childbirth, their views about parenting a newborn, and so on and so forth. And to the point that um, they have a difficult time with anyone that has a slightly different view. And one of the things I've called for is it's okay to disagree on these things. Um, Have a conversation. Somebody may have chosen differently than you, but they probably have good reason for having a different view. Um, But how how can we, in in a time and social media where there just is very, in fact, I actually had a another quote that I saved. Let me pull it up because I thought kind of dealt with this same thing. Um, honorable disagreeableness will not be tolerated. That's what it feels like. So, hey, I disagree with you, you know, um, and there, it's just gotten so ugly. But is there ways we can do better with that? Because that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Mm. Well, it is one of the challenges, and I've kind of referenced it in different ways in the book, but you're getting at that's that networked individualism. We're actually seeing now, like I've seen this among uh, progressive groups and conservative groups, but I've just seen there are progressive Christian groups who they were hurt by the traditional church or let's say extreme conservatism. And so they unite in their own group, right? So now they're together as a progressive group and they're together because they all agree on the same stuff. But then a conflict occurs in that group and then that group fractures. And uh, we're seeing this often those groups are younger people and you live enough life, more conflicts come. And so then they just give up on everything altogether. And so whether it's in person or it's online, we must confront that issue. Am I only connecting with people and interacting with people on as much as they meet my needs and agree with me. And if you are, uh, that's not Christ-like. And so you have to find the heart of Christ. Uh, For me, it's one of the simplest things. um, One of the signs that a a church is a cult is they have lots of boundary markers that require you to enter the group. Uh, They have, you know, 50, 60, 70, 100. You got to dress this way, eat this way, do these things that there's all these laws and they have equal importance. And in order to enter this group, you got to do this. And this is what separates our group from the rest of the groups. I think this is the same thing as well. You have to decide what are the central things that I must have in place to be in relationship with someone? What are the non-negotiables? Everybody needs to figure that out. And then we need to be just passionate about that those non-negotiables are how we develop community, not all these other tangential things. And to actually welcome those things, to say, this can make a healthier relationship when I discover something about someone I didn't know, that I discover they have a different view, like in the mommy groups, a different view of uh, attachment parenting or how long a child should nurse or all the, all the conflicts that this won't hurt me and it won't hurt them for us to have a diverse community where we can sh- share who we are. And at a practical level, uh, we're called to be light and and life in this world, and we must have a theology and convictions that are strong enough for contrasting opinions. If our goal is just to hang out with people who agree with us, God should just take us home. If if ever there's a reason for us still to be here on earth in this sinful world is for us to go into environments where they don't agree with us and to find a way to develop relationships where they know we love them and they can find the love of God. And so as Christians, we need to know why we exist here. I don't exist to just listen to Christian music and Christian radio and Christian TV and read Christian books and hang out with other Christians in my gated community until Christ returns. I exist to be as Christ was, hanging out with sinners, hanging out with the broken, 
hanging out in any setting, whether it's the political or the religious leaders, for the purpose of advancing the kingdom of God. So whatever room you're in, that's your purpose. If you're involved in politics, it's to advance the kingdom of God, not Republicans or Democrats. It's to advance the kingdom of God. If you're talking about theology, it's to advance the kingdom of God, uh, to do the work of reconciliation so that people are drawn closer to God and the dividing walls of hostility are broken down between one and another. Will others follow you? I don't know. But that's just what I'm going to do. That's what I just decided. I'm going to stand before the Lord and say, I didn't bow down to the spirit of this age. Uh, I just decided that I would contrast this divisive, segmented world that only loves people as much as they agree with them. I didn't cancel people. I love them. And even when I strongly disagreed with them, I still brought them before you, Lord, and hoped for your reconciling power to transform their hearts. And then the Lord can judge the worth of what I've done, but I'd rather live for that than for this current divisive, polarizing culture. That's a great encouragement to wrap up with. Um, To our listeners, I'll link the book and then also Doug's podcast in the episode notes so you can um, look at that. And thank you so much for this, for joining us for this book that really is um, just a great encouragement. Thank you for having me and thank you for the work that you do. Uh, we can't always measure the, I know for my podcast, I'll look at how many people are listening or not listening and the energy and the effort. What you do has tremendous value because you're creating a space, facilitating a place where the light of Christ can shine. Uh, you're doing the ministry of reconciliation, drawing people to Christ, drawing people into the kingdom, uh, trying to find a way to communicate truth and difficult theological things with the purpose of advancing the good news of Jesus Christ. That matters greatly, and we need everyone doing their part in some way. So thank you so much for what you do. Thank you. That was very encouraging. And we'll see everyone next week. <laughs>